The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're you're with us. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. Um, We pray that right now that you would uh, use this time, God, that you would uh, use your word, and by your Spirit's power that you would change us, um, that you would mold us, Lord. And so we come humble, uh, we come receptive, and so we ask that you would speak. Let's hear him pray. Amen. We are finishing up the book of Esther today. We've got chapter 8, 9, and 10. Don't worry, there's only three verses in chapter 10. But I'm only going to be reading part of chapter 9 in case some of you are like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? But really excited for us to finish up Esther. And then we got a surprise. uh, So hopefully you guys will be surprised. Some of you probably already know, but we've got a surprise next week. So what have you, as we close the book of Esther, what have you learned from the book of Esther? You know, hopefully, as we've kind of spent time, it's not just like a box that we check kind of coming to Sunday morning, but what have, what have you learned from the book of Esther? What has God been teaching you in your life? I know for me, you know, some of the things that we've talked about a lot is that we don't always see God's ways. We don't always understand it. And I think that the Bible talks about that a lot, is that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we see that in the book of Esther especially, that it doesn't appear that God's there doesn't seem as if God is active, as if he's moving. And a lot of times in our lives, we look at the world and we see around us and we kind of go, where are you, God? Why are you not showing up here? Where are you when my loved one dies? Where are you when there, the suffering is happening? Where are you when, when this is happening? How can this happen? And where are you, God? And we ask those questions. And I'm so thankful for the book of Esther because it promises us, it shows us especially in those times, God is there. And even if we don't see it, even if we, don't, we can't touch it, and we're, we're questioning, we're, we're asking God, where are you? The book of Esther promises us that just because we don't see it doesn't mean that God is not active, that he is not working in your life, that he is not working in this world. And so one of the, I think, the big purposes of Esther and, and something that it's helped me to take away is that it promises us that there is hope in every circumstance, that God is a God that is behind the scenes of everything, even if we don't see how it's going to work, right? I mean, we talked about that you wouldn't look at a drunken king trying to parade his wife around as a sex toy and be like, man, God is active right there, right? I mean, like God on display right there, right? I mean, no, none of us, we would look and be like, God, what, where are you at in this? You know, she gets kicked, kicked out as we see a genocide, you know, that the, the Jews are, are sought to be slaughtered. We're like, man, that's a work of God right there. You know, he is all up in that. And none of us would see that. But yet God is in the midst of it and he is orchestrating all of these things, right? I mean, and we talked about that balance that God is completely sovereign, but yet people make, make choices that they are accountable for. And so we see God working through broken and bent vessels to accomplish his will and that his will will be done. It will be done. And that when we look back at the whole story, we're like, oh yeah, like that's how it makes sense. That's how, you know, that event had to happen in order for Esther to become queen if Vashti wouldn't have gotten kicked off. And 
Haman, if he would not have, you know, rose up to there, we would never see Mordecai come. And so we see in hindsight, and it promises us that at one point we won't be able to see clearly. That right now we look through a glass dimly, but then we will, we will see clearly, we will see Christ face to face. And everything that has been so muddy, everything that has been so confused in this world, in our lives, that it will be put into order. That we'll have clarity. And that provides us hope. And so that's just one thing. Hopefully there are many things that you guys have taken away from the book of Esther. But as we, as we go through, my challenge for you is that um, read the whole book, right? I mean, hopefully some of you have got a day or two, maybe a week of, of time off, maybe longer. But my challenge is, is sit down and read the whole book. Because the hard part in this is that we have to do it for sermons, is that we can't, you know, I mean, we break it up and it's kind of like you're watching a film and you're like, all right, well, we're going to watch 20 minutes this week and next week we'll pick up 20 minutes later on. And so you're kind of like, well, what did we talk about two weeks ago? Like, I kind of forgot that 20 minutes. And so sometimes when we get in these books, we miss the big story. We miss some of the things that God is doing because we're just, we're in these finer pieces. And so I really want you to get along with God's word and allow kind of some of the, the things that we've talked about and we've preached on to really soak into you as you read it a couple times. You know, like it really doesn't take that long. I mean, really 25, 30 minutes, you can read the book of Esther, maybe even shorter, but just sit down and read it. And I promise you, as you read the story more and more, you're gonna see how God is working in it. And it's gonna bring insight into your own life. It's gonna bring encouragement for you. Um, and so please just, you know, as you take this time, read and, and ask God to show himself to you through the book of Esther. Um, but we are going to be, uh, finish up, and we're going to be reading Esther uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. Uh, and so I'm going to summarize chapter 8 uh, real quick. Uh, so where we're at in the story, right, is that uh, we learned in chapter 7 that Haman came, and Haman had his plan hatched. He was like, well, I'm going to kill Mordecai, but first I got a feast to go to. I can't kill people when I got a party. And so he goes to party, and uh, everything that he had hoped for gets reversed on him, right, is that the queen at this point reveals that Haman has sought to kill her and kill all the Jews, and it's one of those deer-in-the-headlight moments. Haman's like, uh-oh, like, this is not good. Something is ter- terribly has happened right now, and I... I am no longer second in command. I am actually seen as the enemy of the king and of the queen. And so the king finds his loophole. And uh, and the pole that Haman was looking to kill Mordecai on is himself killed. And so we see that at least, you know, immediately the crisis seems to be averted against the Jews, right? I mean, their enemy is killed. But in chapter 8, it picks up and it says, well, it's great that Haman's killed, but guess what? The command for all of the enemies of the Jews to, to slaughter them is still in force. You know, I mean, once the king sends an edict, it can't be revoked. It's not like, oh, my bad. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'll just take that one back. You know, that doesn't happen. I mean, the king has signed an edict. It's put in law, and so it cannot be reversed. And so you see in chapter 8, the king says, well, I've already taken Haman off. What else do you want? And they're like, well, um... Can you, can you do one little thing? Can you stop the whole, like, genocide? That would be a nice thing for us. We'd be excited and very thankful if you would stop the genocide that's, uh, that's you know, launching against us. And the king says, well, here you go. If you can figure out how to revoke an irrevocable command, good luck. And so you see the king kind of delegates his responsibility. And he says, well, here you go. Here you go, Mordecai. Here you go, Esther. You can have my signet ring. And if you can figure out how to reverse an irreversible command, Go for it. 
And so they put, in, they put their minds together and they issue a counter edict that goes out to all of the nations. And it basically mirrors the exact command of Haman. And it says that the Jews have the ability to defend themselves against any party that would attack them. And that they have the right to annihilate, to kill, to plunder any enemy that had gone against them. And what you see is that it actually mirrors directly Haman's, uh, Haman's you know, edict for against, uh, against the Jews. And so there's rejoicing all across the country as the Jews get ready, they prepare themselves, and they, they get ready to defend themselves against their enemies. And so we pick up uh, from this in chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. It says, verse 1, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day... On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, pray for me with these names, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Abdalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisia, Aridia, and Vastha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hands on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And so we see the summary. The rest of Esther uh, simply goes on and talks about uh, the institution of Purim. Right? And Purim is, uh, they named that festival the remembrance of God's deliverance from their enemies because uh, Haman cast Pur, which is lots, 
and it happened to fall on that very day. And so they named the holiday Purim as a memory of what seemed to be random was actually the sovereign act of God. And so it shows us that what we think often is chance and often is random is actually God working behind the scenes. And so Mordecai grows more famous and the crisis, the crisis is averted. So we've got really two big comments, two big things that we see in this passage. Um, one, we learn that God is a God of reversal. God is a God of reversal. And the second thing that we see is that God is a God that brings his people into rest and to rejoicing. God is a God who brings his people into rest and to rejoicing. And so the first thing that we see in verses one, uh, verse one really, it says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, just so you know, this is kind of in the spring. This is likely March uh, around that time. On the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemy of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, I don't know about you, but I love reversals in stories. Right? I mean, it's what makes a good story a good story. I mean, anybody here love Star Wars? Right? I mean, anybody? All right. right. I mean, like the whole reversal, like, Luke, I am your father. Right? I mean, that's what makes the movie. It's the most quoted thing in the whole movie. And it's just this huge reversal that changes the whole thing. It's the gasp, right? I mean, we see in The Lord of the Rings that, that, that the Hobbit is the one that saves the day. Anybody ever, you know, anybody watch The Sixth Sense? You know, Right? I mean, the end of the movie is this big reversal. Spoiler alert. Sorry, if you haven't watched it by now, you're not watching it. But, you know, Bruce, Bruce Willis is along, and, and this, you know, this kid can, you know, speak and see dead people all along, and Bruce thinks that he's helping the child, and at the very end of the movie, you know, what the reverse happens is that we see, oh my gosh, that actually it was the kid that was helping Bruce all along, that he actually was, was dead. And so, sorry, you know, you, it changes the whole way you watch the movie because of the reversal. Um, but, but we love, we love reversals. It what, it's what makes a story a good story. And, and we see that Esther is a book of reversals, bar none. And so we see that the reversal here, it talks about that the Jews were destined for destruction. But what happens? It happens the, the reverse, right? That though they were destined for destruction, now they actually turn out to be victorious, we see Mordecai was destined to, for downfall, right? I mean, literally, he is, he is ordered, the gallows are constructed, and the next morning, he is planned to, to be impaled, to be an example for everyone around. But yet that same day that he was planned for execution, the reverse happens. And now he is elevated to second in command. And Haman, who is second in command, is given the same fate that Mordecai was supposed to have. And he's destroyed. We see Haman's assurance. I mean, he is in power. He's second in command, and yet he takes the place of Haman in destruction. We see the reverse for Esther. Esther goes from being an orphan to being a queen. She goes from, from being a coward, right? From, from hiding, from you know, uh, having her identity be a secret, to courage, to being willing. She goes from silence and compliance to stepping forward and speaking and boldness. She goes from de- almost denying her Jewishness, from hiding it, to openly proclaiming and risking her life for the sake of her people. And so we see the book of Esther is all about, is all about these dramatic reversals. And it shows us a bigger theme that God is a God of reversal. God is a God that doesn't operate in the, the way that we see. 
His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he is constantly reversing and changing the status quo the way that we think things ought to be. One of my favorite examples of this is in Second uh, Kings 6, 8 through 23. And it's a story of Elijah. And so there's this battle that's going on with the king of Israel and the king of Syria. And the king of Syria has this kind of battle plan. He's launched this, uh, this ambush for Israel in this area. And so he's like, they're for sure going to fall for this. They travel this way all the time. And so he's got his army camped out here. But he doesn't know. Elijah talks to God and Elijah is for the king of Israel. And so Elijah hears from the Lord and sends word to the king of Israel and says, hey, listen, I know you usually go by this way, but don't go by this way because you're all about to be killed. And so the king of Israel listens and they don't go by the way. And the king of Syria is sitting here like scratching his head. And so he turns to all of his guys. He's like, all right, which one of you are a traitor? Who's the insider? Who is the, you know, who's the guy that's betraying us and telling our battle strategies to the king of Israel? And they're all like, listen, it's not us. We're loyal. But you better go get this guy, Elijah, because he hears from God. And everything that you whisper in secret, he proclaims to the king of Israel. And so the king of Syria is like, all right, time to go kill Elijah. And so when it comes at night, he gets a big group of his, he gets part of his army and he goes out and he surrounds the town that Elijah is in. And so Elijah is there with his servant and they wake up the next morning and they, all they see is that they are surrounded, right? I mean, they're surrounded by this massive army with their chariots, with their men, with their horses. And the, the servant of the Lord is like, what are we going to, you know, like wh- the servant of Elijah is like, what are we going to do? Like, we're about to die. And Elijah says this, he says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. And what happens is next is that Elijah prays and says, Lord, strike this army down with blindness. And so the army of Syria is struck down with blindness. And Elijah goes out and says, who are you looking for again? Oh, you're looking for Elijah? Well, let me take you to him. And so he leads the army all the way to the king of Samaria and, he, and their eyes are opened and they realize that they're not with Elijah. Instead, they're surrounded by their opposing army. And, and instead, I'll, I'll, you know, the king of Samaria says, shall I kill them? And he says, no, they're, they're captives. Instead, you will give them food and you will give them water and you will return them. And so the king of, of Samaria, you know, feeds them and returns them to the king of Syria and they don't attack again. <laughs> and so we see that God is a God of reversal, that though it seemed as if their destruction was imminent, their destruction was assured, he says, there's something going on that you cannot see. There's a battle that's behind the scenes that you aren't privy to. And he asks, he says, would you open their eyes to see what's really going on? You know that that's what the book of Revelation is all about. I love the book of Revelation. So often we get stuck in the but the book of Revelation is really about this. It's about God peeling back the curtain and saying, you think that you see what's really going on. You think that you look at the world's events and you understand it, but let me show you what's really going on behind the scenes. Let me show you the battle. Let me show you the sovereign God that is back behind the scenes and operating and working. And he peels back the curtain in these visions. He says, here's what's really going on behind the scenes. Our God is a God of reversal. We don't always see exactly what's going on, but he is working and we see this especially in the New Testament, right? I mean, God loves to use his enemies 
and, and totally change them. I mean, Paul goes from being a murderer to a missionary. You know, I mean, talk about a reversal. God says, God says you, Paul, you've sought to persecute me. You've sought to lay hands on my people and on my church. He goes and he like, he blinds them. He's like, all right, you're going to be blind for three days and you're going to think about things. You're going to think about what you've done. And so he blinds them for three days and Paul is, is thinking about Christ and the one that appeared to him in, in this blinding light and changed his life forever and says, I will show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake. And he sends Paul out. Our God is a God of reversal as he changes the status quo. He changes people's lives. And we see this no more clearly than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And just listen to what, how Jesus talks about what the blessed life is, what the kingdom of God is like. Hear this in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Now we hear that and we kind of think, okay, that changes things. But let me read something else. This is kind of what I think the world says is the blessed life. Blessed are the rich and the self-sufficient. Blessed are the happy, the giddy, and the positive thinkers. Blessed are the assertive and go-getters. Blessed are those who look out for and protect themselves. Blessed are the multitaskers who attach God to some part of their life at some point. Blessed are those who are on the correct side on all conflicts and ensure their correctness is always known. Blessed are those whose lives are comfortable, uh, are comfortable, Blessed, blessed are those who live a comfortable life filled with entertainment and ease. Blessed are those who live for themselves and their kingdom and whom all people think well of. Jesus flips upside down the kingdom of this world. You want to live a blessed life by God? You want to understand what true living looks like? You need to come utterly dependent utterly humble, utterly broken, realizing I bring nothing to God and I come to him with need. You want to live a, a blessed life. You come to God and you come broken by your sin, realizing that your sin has destroyed you and, and broken by this world and eager and mourning for God to bring change within your own heart and within this world. The blessed life is one marked by thirsting and hungering for God's kingdom more than we do for food rather than saying well things will work out in the end we we come and we are eager for God's will and God's way God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom it is constantly reverting the ways of this world God is a God of reversal and he shows us no more clearly than the cross of Jesus I mean, right, this is what Christmas is about, is we come and we celebrate that God came as a king by coming as an infant in a feeding trough. I mean, how, how much more of a reversal can you get? Kings aren't born in feeding troughs. Kings are born in palaces. 
But God says, no, I, the wisdom of this world will be confounded by the wisdom of God. Because in my foolishness, I am wiser than the wisdom of men. He comes born as an infant, dependent, humble. He, he's raised up, not by the rich or the wealthy, but by the poor. He learns as a, as a carpenter. He goes and he lives in ministry. And who does he pick? He picks carpenters. He picks fishermen. He picks tax collectors, right? He, he picks those people that would have been rejected by everyone else. And he says, I will show you. I will turn the world upside down with these men to show you that the glory is God and the strength is his and what he can do in a life. He goes and he reverses the ways of this world, right? Because how is power seen? How is power shown in this world? But that might makes right. If you want something, you better go and get it. You better show that your will is stronger than everyone else's. And he shows that the strength of God is found in giving away and by, by laying down your life, by going to a cross. He defeated death by dying and by raising again. He reversed everything that this world defined as strength and as power by entrusting himself to God. God is a, a God of reversals. What does this mean for us? What does it practically mean for us? It means that God can reverse your story. It means that no matter where you're at or what you've done, God can reverse your story. He can change you. You are not defined by your past You're not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by your sin. Even now, God can reverse your story no matter how dark, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter where you are, God can reverse your story. And what this means and what the implications is is it humbles us, right? This should humble us to our core because we don't know how God is going to choose to reverse our story. I think about how God has reversed my story and he's done so through cancer in my family's life. He's done so through death. He's done so through ripping relationships out so that I might cling to him. God uses all kinds of means to reverse our stories and it humbles us because we don't know exactly how God's going to work as we see in the book of Esther. We don't know how or when God is working, but it gives us hope that God can and God will. God can reverse our stories. And we know this because ultimately the truth is is that God is already reversing this world. The cross of Christ promises that God is set on a whole new course, this world, that his kingdom is already here, it is already coming, and that it will ultimately come, that the gates of hell will not stand against him building his church, that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, and that you and I, we live in that reality now. We can choose to live in the reality of God's kingdom here and now, to say, you know what? This kingdom of this world, it says that the blessed life is one of ease, it's one of comfort, it's one of wealth, it's one of self-sufficiency, but I reject that kingdom. That kingdom is not the true kingdom. The kingdom of God says that I come humble, I come broken, I come dependent upon God and his strength and his strength alone, that I have nothing to bring to the table, but that with Christ, all things are possible. That when I abide in him and he abides in me, he will produce much fruit. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And we can live in that kingdom that is coming, that is here, and that will be here finally and fully. We can live in that now. And not only can our stories be changed, but we can be a part of God's bigger story for how he is reversing this world, how he is reversing injustice and evil in this world right now. He wants to use his church to be a part of that.
God is a God of reversal. How is God reversing your story? What has God done that has been unexpected, that has been unseen to change the trajectory of your life, to lead you closer to him? Keep an eye out. God wants to change your story. He wants to change the trajectory of your story, of your life that would bring him glory. Let's continue to... The second big point that we see is that God brings rest and rejoicing for his people. God brings rest and rejoicing for his people. And we see this at the end in verses 17 through 19. It says, This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting, made that a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day for which they send gifts of food to one another. And so what happens after God defeats his enemies, after the people stand victorious, is that they celebrate. And they celebrate this victory over their enemies by resting There's finally rest when their enemies are slain, when they are done, when there is no more threat against them, when the threat against them has been put down, they are able to finally rest. And that resting, what does it lead to? It leads to rejoicing. It leads to rejoicing. And this is the pattern all throughout. I mean, go back to Genesis and we see God creates in six days, right? He speaks and things come into existence. He brings things into order. And after each day, he says it is good. But on the seventh day, on the seventh day, it says that God rested. He took a break. And what, what did he do? That rest was still an active thing. It was that he reflected on that rest. And that in that day of rest, he reflected in that reflecting and brought rejoicing as he looked back on all that had happened. He rejoiced in the good works that he was doing. And don't you see this? That, that resting and rejoicing, they are intricately connected that unless we rest properly, we will never truly rejoice as we were meant to. And so this, is, this speaks so much into our life right now is that God puts these rhythms into our lives, right? He, he calls us to have a Sabbath. And so often in our culture, we just, we, we kick it off to the, to the curb. We think all the other Ten Commandments are really good, but Sabbath, you know, that's a nice suggestion. Like, don't kill people, that's a command. You know, if I break that, that's wrong. But like, you know, the nine commandments are the one suggestion. You know, we like that because we think that Sabbath is just kind of like a suggestion. Like, well, if I feel like resting, I, I guess I should kind of maybe think about resting. But God says, listen, I have made, I've made you to rest. Right? And there's a deeper rest than just physical rest, but we need physical rest too. Right? We need to take a break to let our bodies rejuvenate, to recover. But there's a deeper rest that the Sabbath points to. It's the rest that is ultimately found in, in Jesus Christ. You see that even, I don't know if you've experienced it, that, that maybe you've gone on a vacation, you come back and you're like, man, I need a vacation for my vacation. Right? You're like, you're like man, how could I get so tired on taking a break? And, and and it's because there's a deeper rest underneath the rest that we are seeking. Right? We think that sometimes what we just need is that we need to just, you know, I'm guilty of this. I'm like, man, I just need to turn my brain off. You know, we sit there and we watch Netflix or we watch some movie because we think that that's going to bring the rest that we're so deeply longing for. But yet afterwards, we find ourselves more tired and more worn out and more in need of rest than when we first began. And Jesus comes on and he says, listen, I have come 
to show you what the true Sabbath rest is, is that you're striving to prove who you are. You're striving to, in your performance, to say this is who I am. You're striving to, to put together your identity by your own effort and your own works. And Jesus comes and he says, listen, I will tell you who you are. I will identify you and there is rest in that because you are not defined by your performance. You're not defined by how hard of a worker you are, how diligent you are, how faithful you are. You're defined by me. And when you, when you allow yourself to be defined by Christ, when you allow yourself to rest in who he says that you are, then you can truly enter into the Sabbath rest that Jesus invites us into. And you can experience the rest that's underneath the rest. And that is what he is inviting to because we, we need that rest. Without that rest, we miss out on the guidance that God would bring in our lives. You guys ever been traveling, you know, you, you're driving along and your GPS just kind of like, you know, doesn't cooperate with you? You're like, you're driving, and you're like, all right, like I know that three miles ago it said that I was right here and I'm still right here and it's like not connecting. And like, you know, I've experienced this many times where I get to the place or it tells me the wrong directions and I'm like, I wind up at the address and I'm like looking around I'm like, this is not the place. You know, like I, I was supposed to be someplace but I'm not there and it's because there's not a right connection. You know, it's the signal's not getting through, the, the feed is not right. And so often in our lives, we go haphazardly, right? We haven't let the GPA, we haven't let things kind of correctly download and we're just like, I gotta go. And so we jump in our car and we go off before we've actually thought through and processed, where am I actually going to? Do I know where I'm supposed to arrive? And we go and we find ourselves lost. We find ourselves and we ask, how did I get here? I didn't think that this is where I was wanting to be. And oftentimes that's because we fail to rest. What often happens in rest is that we actually begin to connect with God. That we slow ourselves down and we begin to listen. And it, in that listening, what I found often is that God brings rejoicing into my life. God, re, God helps that rest to turn into reflection. And that reflection oftentimes turns into rejoicing as I think back about what God has done and how good he has been. It says, be still and know that he is God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But to do that, we have to first be still. We have to silence the distractions. And we have to say, God, I want to taste that you are good. I want to see that you are good. And it takes, listen, it takes faith to rest, right? It is an act of faith to rest because it says that what needs to be done, God will see to it. And it, it makes me say no. It makes me say no. We don't like to say no. We like to say yes and we like to occupy our time by being busy because it makes us feel important. It makes us feel productive. But can I tell you that, that oftentimes I am most unproductive when I'm not actually resting well. Because when you rest well, it helps you discern. It gives you wisdom about what you're called to do and what you're not called to do. Because it gives you clarity about what really matters in this world and what are you giving yourself to that does not matter. That is not what God would call you to. And God wants you to do that. But it also, it, oftentimes I find that our work isn't as efficient because we're, we're, we're weighed down. We are burdened. And one of the things that rejoicing does, one of the things that joy does is it helps to lift the burden off. It helps to remind us not to take yourself so seriously. It's not all about you. It's gonna be okay. God's good and things will end up as he intends. 
It helps you to rejoice in his sovereignty and in his goodness. It helps you reflect back and see how God has been faithful in all the different steps of your life, how he has been there. And it gives you hope in the midst of your work to say that it is okay. And that you approach your work with a joy and with a thankfulness that changes the caliber of your work. It changes the kind of work that you produce. You see, resting is the antidote for overwork and is also the antidote for laziness because it centers us back into God and it helps us to work, not to prove ourselves or not for control of our lives. And it hinders us from being lazy, right? Laziness and overwork, they have the same foundation, control. We want control of our lives. With overwork, we say, well, I'm gonna control my life by being as productive as possible and by getting as much done as I possibly can. And when we do laziness, we say, well, I wanna control my life because I want comfort. And so I'm gonna slouch off and do all these things because I think that this is a better life. And when we rest in God, what we do is it changes, is that we begin to live no longer for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. Is that it helps us to live unto him and we work for him and we rest for him and we live our lives by faith in him. And so as we enter into hopefully a season of rest, God gives us these rhythms. God gives hopefully you time off of work to take rest. Choose to rest in him. Choose. Choose not to take your rest and to, to spend it and throw it away in things that aren't rest. Choose to say, God, that I will rest in you. And what does that look like? What does it mean to rest in Christ? So it doesn't always mean that you're like, well, I'm gonna take 10 hours of Bible study time. You know, maybe, maybe that's a good thing that God would call you to, but it means that you're together. Yes, it means that you take time to be with the Lord and try, try to take, just say, Lord, I'm gonna give you 30 minutes this day. I just wanna be before you in prayer. I just wanna listen to you. I wanna learn to hear your voice. What would you instruct me in this next season in 2019? But it means that we're in community. One of the things that, that helps us to rest is that we get with other people that love the Lord. We fellowship. That brings rest into our souls. Is that we go out, we enjoy his creation. Walk and, and start to see, reflect. If you journal, write down what God has done for you this year. Reflect on his goodness to you and all that he has brought in your life. Rejoice in his goodness. As we close, I want to read Psalm 23. I think that for me, this, this has helped me. This has been such an instructive psalm in knowing that God leads us into times of resting and rejoicing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are a God of reversal and that you change our lives, God. Please, thank you. And just continue to help us to, to look and to be aware that you will change this world. Help us to join you in that venture.
Thank you, God, that you desire for us to enter into your rest. Let us come and lay our heavy burdens down, to lay our, our deadly deeds down and to trust in your work for us on the cross, that what you have done is sufficient, that what you have done is enough, and that we can rest in your work. Let us, in, this, in these next days, as we think about what you've done in coming as a baby and giving your life for us, let us rest, let us reflect, and let us rejoice. Let that be the, the rhythm of our life, God. Help us in this. Help us to walk this out by faith, by trusting that it's okay for us to say no. It's okay for us to, to be still. That you are our provider. You are our sustainer. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.